Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stuhler. In design, there's a certain aesthetic when we imagine the word sophistication. It's likely rather muted, natural, maybe even quite somber, and we apply it often to offices, to homes, to restaurants, to hotels. But these spaces often aren't very joyful, per se. Joyful spaces are playful and bright, and so we think of joyful places as those for children. Rarely do we think the two can coexist. One's mature, the other is juvenile. More and more, however, designers are challenging this preconception and questioning why we often push joy to the margins and write it off as something that lacks refinement or elegance. In the pod today, two such people. I'm Wagmaiskoff. I'm a designer and an artist, and I make big installations which incorporate colors and words and usually are quite joyful. I'm Ingrid Fatel-Lee, and I'm a designer and the author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Ingrid Fatel-Lee is the Brooklyn-based author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness, and the blog Aesthetics of Joy. She's herself also a designer and has worked as design director at IDEO's New York office. Morag Meyerskoff is the prolific, multi-award-winning founder of Studio Meyerskoff, which she established in 1993. Her work is rooted in creating a sense of joy and belonging for all those who encounter it. She's designed several exhibitions for London's Design Museum and the exterior of the British Pavilion for the 2004 Venice Biennale, as well as working with schools, hospitals, art centers, and more. Morag's mantra is to make happy those who are near and those who are far will come. So I never set out to study joy. I set out to study design. And it was while I was in design school at my uh, first year at Pratt Institute uh, when a professor was critiquing my work and he said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And um, I became curious about that because I'd always been taught that joy is this ephemeral, fleeting feeling. And it's not something that comes from tangible things and certainly not from the really ordinary kinds of things that I was making, which was, you know, a cup and a lamp and a stool, these very basic objects. And so I asked my professor, you know, how do things create joy? How do tangible things create intangible joy? And uh, he couldn't answer the question. None of the other professors on the panel could answer the question. And so that's what I set out to do is really to understand the connection between um, psychology and the way um, that, you know, happiness uh, and uh, joy are found um, in the world and, and how that connects to um, our physical surroundings. And so that is what I study uh, for a living. So my work is a little bit more... Well, I've never analysed anything, I have to be honest. So I just do things instinctively, intuitively, and I have always loved bright colours and strong imagery. I, 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 When I was younger, I loved pop art and everything that was uh, sort of bright and strong. And, and so I think those things embed in your brain from when you're a child of the things that you like as a child. I think more and more now that I used to go to see, go to fun fairs and carnivals and things like that. And now basically people think that my work 
is about fun fairs and carnivals and maybe that is because those were the places that I really liked when I was small mm-hmm. and and so when I translate work now and a lot of my work is about belonging and about people getting being connected to the work and feel part of the work possibly all those embedded memories come forward and and I make places that have that sense of joy even though maybe it's in some instances it's very sort of just instant and um, is temporary but then in hospitals it's about places that people stay for a long time and you know and hopefully makes them feel better as well. Mm. I um, I heard that your family um, has roots in the circus is <laughs> that right? Yeah and also I <laughs> family from the circus so maybe that is also another and music I was brought up my father was a musician my mother a textile artist music art all those things around me that made me feel happy and I think it in my work I try and find that place again for other people as well yeah because I think that um, you have, it seems like you have an intuitive understanding of joy and an intuitive ability to convey joy. And maybe it's because you were surrounded by so many of these um, naturally joyful things. You know, you were sur- you experienced all these joyful places. And in a way that, um, I don't know, gave you a, a deep-seated source of inspiration to share that joy with the world. But for me, joy and happiness does always stem from belonging. So when I was a child, I was in this very bohemian lifestyle and I felt like I belonged there. And in a way, then I've been in search of finding out how do you make belonging for other people? Mm-hmm. And that can involve colour and it can involve, but it can also mm-hmm. involve a lot of other thought processes mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And And then working with people to see how they get stimulated what what how can you do workshops what do you do to stimulate people who have ma- maybe never made anything with color or art or words before mm-hmm. and, and i did a workshop recently in ditchling and this group of um lots of social groups quite a lot of older people and they had never done a workshop before and at the end of it they were just so happy and mm-hmm. they were they went away and they wanted to do more and they really enjoyed it and they had never experienced that. Mm-hmm. And to give people new experiences as well is is a very exciting way of finding things for other people that they mm-hmm. find enjoyable mm-hmm. as well as joyful. Mm-hmm. You know? I, yeah, I think there's something when you talk about, you know, people experiencing this for the first time in workshops, there's something about... Uh, just the visceral quality of getting to play with color and getting to be immersed in um, some of these sensations that I think we don't actually have a lot of in our daily lives. I mean, a lot of our environments that we live in, most people live in, I think, and and our workplaces are often really gray and really drab. And so I think there's something about, you know, I see it too when people, um, when I do workshops with people, it's a little bit different. Um, But uh, there's something about sort of reconnecting to uh, the joy that we find so easily as kids in these things. You know, you can, I don't know, I remember playing with finger paints or just like, you know, know, being out in the fall leaves or there are all these sort of visceral joys that we have access to that I think we sort of um, we don't get as much as adults um, or we stop accessing. But do you think that's um, because 
colour and being playful is not sophisticated, considered sophisticated, because I was in speaking in India and in Saudi Arabia as well, and they, when I talked to anybody there, to be sophisticated, you don't use colour, because colour is about tradition, about um, craft, about making, about not being sophisticated. Yeah. And... Um, and I think that's where we've lost, where people have lost their way with color. A hundred percent, I think, and it's so sad to hear that um, because I think of India as a place where color is still very much um, sort of allowed to live on the surface and in everyday life. So it's sad to hear that sophistication there too is equated with sort of um, restraint uh, and um, drab colors. But um, for me, it goes back to, you know, Gota and his theory of colors um, in 1810. He said that, you know, um, savage nations, uneducated people, and children typically prefer bright colors, whereas people of refinement avoid vivid colors in their dress. Mm. And I think that that is something that we have absorbed, certainly in um, many Western cultures. Um, and, it, and it colors our, um, our visual expression, and then I think, by extension, our joy. I mean, you and I both clearly have no problem <laughs> wearing color. <laughs> um, but I did for a long time, actually. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of my life wearing just black and gray. Mm. Um, and uh, I do think that that comes from a, a sense of restraint that, you know, you have to grow up at a certain point and you have to, you know, put that aside. Um, and maybe in creative industries, it's um, a little bit easier. But I mean, I was a designer. I was, mm. I felt like I had to look serious for clients and for, you know, for others. And when I started to bring it back into my life, I did feel this tension between the sense of judgment that I wasn't it was a little bit childish, um, but it actually made me feel good. Mm. Well, people often say about my work, um, you know, children would like that. And, and I just think they've so missed the point <laughs> of things when the right. people only think it's for kids just because it's colourful. They don't really look at the sophistication of anything. They just look at the fact that it's bright colours and therefore it's for children. Right. But I do also think... Um, because the majority of architecture up until more recently has been more controlled by men as well. I mean, I think there is a level if a level now that there's equality and maybe then that does mean that colour can... It, I'm not talking about all about cushions and things like that. You know? No, not at all. I'm talking about, you know, that actually there's more of a, a an equal say on things that maybe that there was previously. Because yeah. I know in the past I've been... Um, try to been told to tone things down yeah. by various people, yeah. and and then I go away feeling guilty. Should I? And then I think no, that well, you shouldn't have asked me in the first place, right? You know, because right. that's what I do. Yeah, and so go and get somebody else. Yeah, but sometimes it takes quite a lot of courage to do that. Yeah, because you sort of feel like you want to fit in in certain tribes or you want to do things. But I've always been on the outside, so I don't really. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really that bothered. But you know, it's it's interesting to observe. Um, you know why? I mean, as you've done analysis, you know why is our why is our landscape so grey and in India it's more because I think what is great in India where they're getting other people from other countries to come in and saying actually no embrace your colour it's a young industry it's young and amazing young people that all they need to do is see how other people are doing it and yeah. then they will I think it's still it's a 
it's just a thought process at the moment. So that's right. I'm getting a bit complex here, but that's where um, their their perceived thing is sophistication. But they can break those rules. Yes, and in any emerging countries with design and art, they can break all the rules and they can put things together and combine things, which is great. Rather than in in countries where there is a tradition which is harder. Yeah. to break as well, yeah. which is controlled by a very different hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I want to come back to the masculine-feminine piece mm. because I really think your point about um, that the world has been so much designed by men is it's so important. Um, and I think when I look at, like, it is true. I mean, in design, you know, you often think about like a masculine aesthetic versus a feminine one. Mm-hmm. And um, masculine is often hard surfaces, hard materials, um, you know, very rectilinear shapes um, and uh, and more uh, sort of reserved color palettes. Um, and then feminine often has a lot of color and uh, curves or circles um, or, um, you know, and softness, a sense of softness Mm. to it. Um, And I think, you know, whether or not, you know, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know exactly the origins of that. But I do think that, you know, when you look at a world designed entirely by men, I mean, this is what we have, you know. Mm. So it certainly seems to have borne itself out. And I am really curious what will happen as, you know, more women are defining not just the interior of spaces, but also the the architecture um, and how that will change the landscape. Because, I mean, the world, you know, I think the the built environment was developed very quickly, you mm. know, in terms of human history um, mm. and all under the, con- the control of men or under primarily under the direction of men. And mm. so I do think there's something there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to we'll make the we'll difference. Have to, yeah, <laughs> I have to keep an eye on it. <laughs> um So I'd love to know more about your work with hospitals because I think, you know, from my part, this is an area where I feel like um, environments, hospitals are environments where, you know, people don't really have a choice about where they get to be. Mm. And I think that um, those tend to be, you know, from my research, the worst environments um, Mm. aesthetically. Mm. And so I'm just curious about how you got into that and, and what you do there. Well, there is a lot of work being done, particularly in the UK in hospitals. I don't know about in other countries necessarily, except for Sweden. I did in Sweden. There's There are some amazing art commissioners. So at the Whitechapel, I worked with Vital Arts, and um, that's the children's hospital. Um, I, that's where I have done <laughs> mainly hospital children, um, except for in Sweden. And, um, and at Sheffield, there's the Art Felt, which is, again, the... Arts Commission Trust for the hospital. And then in Sweden, I was commissioned um, to do a much, a, a very different piece in the whole of the um, uh, hospital uh, for every public space rather than mm-hmm. and just for the children. But the project that I'm most excited about is the, is the bedrooms in Sheffield because... Um, Working in the public areas in in the hospitals is not as complex because you don't have to really worry too much about the medical conditions in the same way as if you're putting something in a bedroom. 
or in a way not so many people will have a say on that because they um, it's okay they're, they're places you pass through rather than uh, you're in the room and you mm-hmm. may have a very you may have a child or an adult that is under extreme medication and therefore the history of that is to give a room that is clean doesn't disturb the person that that's in it therefore possibly a pale color mm-hmm. and um and and it functions and and i think through education through i don't i haven't gone through how nurses are taught about bedrooms or anything but i i have touched on there was a survey years ago where landscapes are meant to be the most soothing thing in a hospital bedroom mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because that has been taught to everybody right. then people think that that's really what you should have mm-hmm. so there's a whole sort of process that you have to go through to change people's mindsets because if you're working with the um, clinical staff they want to they they're carers and they want people to be well and they don't want you to put something in a room that is going to give a child of course an, a fit or a, you know or something or an adult or anything so but because there haven't been so many tests of bedrooms mm-hmm. um you're left with the lowest common denominator really mm-hmm. so when i did this project i i met all the clinical staff and um they <laughs> they they really they said in the next day I I showed them all these ideas and then they said well she was really nice but there's no way she's doing those bedrooms <laughs> she's going to kill the children and um and it's like she's not going to do those bedrooms and I was like going okay everybody because I'd worked in schools I worked in other hospitals I had a certain amount of experience in those places I said let's just calm down a bit what I'll do is I'll just look at the ones that I think are more palatable I was just trying to make these bedrooms that were stimulating enough that they felt like home and they felt cozy and they felt like the kids could um just um relax in them um because they were there for a long time their parents might be there everything anyway so we made these models we i didn't get involved um they were sent up to sheffield the arts group showed it to all the patients well as many as they did and 92% wanting the bedrooms so we took it back and we took it to the to everybody and then the clinical staff said okay all right if you just give me six blue bedrooms there were 48 in total where we can move the more um medicated kids in then we'll move them out mm-hmm. but we had to go through a process right so i think and now the bedrooms are there and the most important thing is you get everybody on side there's no use doing a bedroom that all the clinical staff hates because right. then they will be angry and they'll hate they'll be nasty you know they'll just be angry right. so it what if we never got to that point we shouldn't we shouldn't we wouldn't have done it right if we hadn't got to them agreeing we wouldn't have done it because it would have been wrong yeah. because they wouldn't have bought into the whole right um, right right thing but now yeah. we've done it and it is a sort i'm not saying it's a first or anything but it's yeah. a big breakthrough yeah um and they're enjoying it yeah i mean that and that's what what else can you ask for you're listening to thought starters recorded at white city place in conversation today are designer and author ingrid fatelli and designer moreg marskoff for me i feel 
and I hear this so much in conversations with people about um, healthcare environments and other environments. I think there's a parent, almost a paranoia. There's like a fear mm. of color, mm. and there's a fear of stimulation mm. and overstimulation. Mm. I think we are so paranoid about overstimulation in our culture mm. that we don't ever think about understimulation. Mm. We don't really think about the problem of, you know, it's not natural to be in a completely white or gray box. Um, mm. Because if you look at, you know, the natural environment, there's movement, there's color, there's sensation, there's sound, all of those things are natural. And so I think, um, but we do have this protective uh, impulse to say, oh, that's going to be too bright. It's going to, you know, make people nervous, or it's going to make people uncomfortable. When in fact, when you did the research, you found 92% of kids wanted this mm. in their and bedrooms. The parents wanted it as yeah. well. What, what, what my premise of the room was, was if they were at home in bed, in their own bed at home, they would have their toys around them. They would have maybe something that was read in the room. Posters, Because I think I'm there's sure. a different... When people talk about too much colour, they almost imagine you're going to paint the room red, fully mm -hmm. red or fully pink. Mm -hmm. I have painted a room red. It is the most horrible experience <laughs> to sleep in and you don't want that. But if you have small amounts of colour, that red is sitting next to another colour. So it's not going to hurt you. Right. You know, in the way people think it's going to hurt you. Right. In the way maybe a whole room, a, a, a room of yellow or a room of green or a room of orange, I think that does actually have a, a, a quite a strong effect on your brain. If it's the whole thing. The whole yeah. thing. But it, we're I talking think. about... But, when, but yeah. then people don't, can't differentiate between that. Right. So if they, if you introduce... You know, red is a, is a no-no, and I can understand for some people it is a no-no. Yeah. Um, but if the red is next to another colour, it, 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 it sits differently as well to yeah. when it's just completely in a red room. So right. I think it's also explaining to people, really taking them along with you and explaining to them the difference about colour, that it isn't just there's this or that there's right. these other ways and you can look at it and it can be a white room with some colors or it can be right you know, and not to be as scared of color right i mean i think there's also the physiology piece of it which is mm. that you know um in my research i found that you know so there's a, a really great study which is um, done in work environments it's hard to find research on color in healthcare environments but in work environments research shows that um, people working in more colorful offices and mm -hmm. this is across cultures um, are more alert they're more confident they're more friendly um, more joyful than people working in drab spaces mm -hmm. and i think that um, one of the reasons for this is that color influences our energy levels and our sense of arousal and so when we have brighter colors that reflect more light um, in a space, um, that that tends to um, correlate with a feeling of joy. And uh, and people sort of, uh, their sort of self-described reactions to color reflect that. And even like, you know, when we're talking about children, children use bright colors in their drawings mm. to indicate um, happy mm. scenarios, and um, and they use dark and drab colors um, to indicate situations with tension and conflict. Mm. Um, and so uh, that spectrum of brightness is already sort of an innate, it's an inbuilt um, response. And uh, so I think um, what you're doing really just builds on that in a very natural way. But do you think, I also feel, feel that um, another thing about, you know, the effect of color is, is how much natural light you have and what was and that's mm -hmm. why it's really important that working collaboratively with architects and various that 
th those bedrooms, they were extra, I think, um, better for well-being because they had windows and natural light. Yes. So I think whatever I do with colour, you can't beat having natural 100%. light in a space. Because yeah. I, I work from a studio that has is top-lit natural light. I actually have white walls, but I feel happy in that yeah. space because it's the yes. sun is there. And, yes. you know, so like you're saying, the colour um, re reproduces that in a way, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. But also the two can enhance, can enhance each other as well within architecture. Anyway. I think they're always in dialogue. Mm. I mean, you're mm. never seeing colour without light because light is how we see colour, mm. yeah. right? And so, yeah, um, so I think that, um, I mean... From my from my perspective, um, light is probably one of the most important things in terms of creating a feeling of joy. Mm -hmm. And when we don't have, um, uh, you know, natural light, the full sort of broad spectrum of rays from the sun, um, mm -hmm. we have all sorts of um, problems with our circadian rhythm mm -hmm. and uh, and all sorts of disruptions. And that is really clear in a healthcare com context. Um, yeah. And it's clear with, uh, for example, with people with Alzheimer's, people with Alzheimer's who don't have access to broad spectrum light, whether natural or supplemental whether it's artificial, they have all sorts of um, sleep disruptions and um, and just changing the light bulbs in a nursing home uh, to broad spectrum bulbs can actually decrease both cognitive decline and also depression that come with the condition. Mm. So um, and same thing with kids, you know, in classrooms where um, classrooms get more natural light, um, you know, students learn faster, sometimes progress faster um, on standardized testing even. So, mm. um, so, yeah, so I think the natural light is a really big part of it and sometimes color can uh, help address or supplement um, when you don't have the light that you wish you had um, but obviously mm. it's best if you have the the great natural light <laughs> and the color together that's yeah. ideal and yeah. we love London when it has nice sun like yeah. this we've had a couple of great <laughs> days in a row here yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I think for me, what's next is really to um, prove some of these things out or see some of these things um, more uh, concretely demonstrated, because I think there's a lot of research um, that explains how we respond to nature, how we respond to light, how we respond to color. Um, but it's different situated in the environment and understanding, you know, seeing just even the anecdotal you know, feedback from work like yours in mm. a hospital, I'd love to see more and more of those kinds of studies and case mm. studies and done at scale where we can actually see how these things are affecting people. Um, so, for example, you know, there's research that shows, that I think, the landscape study that you talk about mm. when people have a green view out a window. This was a, a really famous study about how people who had just had gallbladder surgery, um, they uh, went home from the hospital sooner and they needed less pain medication while they were there. So that's a, you know, that's great data. Mm -hmm. um, mm. It would be great to see the same thing for color. It would be mm. great to see um, how some of these other aesthetics actually affect people um, on a deeper level. So that's my hope is to, is to start to um, see more of that and, and, as designers are starting to work more and more and artists in these spaces um, to have scientists um, also work with them on gathering that data and actually uh, doing it in a rigorous way. Yeah, I think that's really key because people ask me all the time and I've talked to the various commissioners 
can they do that? And they just haven't got the resources to do that. So it does need somebody to come in because there are some good projects that have been around now five years, different people five, six years. And I think it would be really good even if to find out the negative side of things, Absolutely. you know, whatever, that, to learn from it yes, um, and and see how it can be implemented in other places not I, I think there's a danger you don't really want to take a model as such but you want right. to get a sense of how you can change things yes. don't you and I think that this area is just so un, untapped I mean mm. when you look at the research on color I think it's really clear there's just so much we still don't know mm. and it has to do with the fact that color interacts with light and um, that each hue, you know, there's lots of research that's been done about, you know, red versus green versus blue, but it doesn't really take into account the brightness level, the saturation, um, the light falling on it, mm -hmm. and all of the, the scale, how much red, this patch of red versus this giant, you know, patch yeah. of red, that's all different. Yeah. And they all affect us in different ways. And so the research needs to get a lot more precise on some of these elements, I think, to give us good direction on what we should be doing to create good environments for healing or learning or, um, you know, for... Uh, just generally being um, healthy or collaborative or belonging, all of mm. those things. How do we <laughs> cultivate those things? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was Ingrid Fatelli, designer and author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness, and designer Morag Meyerskoff, founder of the award-winning studio Meyerskoff. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Dianico project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded and edited by Sean Cook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.